right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Sunday night recap is going to be a little different this week. We are on the road for basically the first time uh, since March, filming Taurus Sauce Season 6. I did take the day off from playing today to watch some golf, and then uh, we called up Ryan Lavner from the Golf Channel to take us through the weekend golf. He's been watching a lot more golf than we have out here, and uh, the guys are off filming, doing other things. So we've never had him on, which seems ridiculous. I don't know why that is the case. He follows the game extremely closely, follows the amateur game very closely for Golf Channel, of course. And uh, with the USAM going on, we just we brought in we brought in the closer here to talk talk some amateur golf, kind of put this this week's event in perspective. Talk about the Wyndham. Talk about the Lady Scottish Open as well. Uh, we're going to get to that shortly. We talk a lot about what is in our hands and, and the hands of the tour players, but we rarely talk about what is on those hands. Uh, I told the story when we went to the Epic Flash launch event. I put on the Callaway Tour Authentic Glove, and I honestly thought I thought they were just like for tour pros. I didn't think that, you know, because it was called Tour Authentic, I was like, oh my God, they, they wheeled out like all the really good stuff for this Epic Flash launch event. I, I didn't know you could actually buy them. Uh, you can. The Callaway Tour Authentic Glove, it's tackier. A 20% increase in grip performance made from premium Cabretta leather. It's softer and thinner. Uh, it's infused with grip tech for a second skin fit. So you check out the Callaway Tour Authentic Glove at CallawayGolf.com. I, I wear these things out. I go, they last a really long time, but I was ready for a new one. But I just, I, I hate changing gloves. Put a fresh one on the other day, and it was immediate how much better my grip was on the golf club. So again, check that out. Callaway Tour Authentic Glove at CallawayGolf.com. Let's get to our chat with Ryan Lavner. All right, Lav, I am riding hard on you this week. I, you know, I, I'll probably mention about 35 times while we're recording here that I'm abandoned right now. Not watching a lot of golf. Watch some golf here on Sunday, but I'm hoping you watch some golf this week. I don't blame you at all. And and by the way, we actually couldn't be further apart almost on a United States map. I think we're like more than 3000 miles apart. Uh, you're in a, in a golfing heaven in Bandon dunes and I'm in my house sweltering, uh, cause it's Orlando, Florida. I'm, I'm extremely envious in, in other words. Well, I was really questioning some of my life decisions today that I spent most of my afternoon watching the Wyndham, uh, while being next to some of the greatest golf courses, uh, on the planet. Uh, but we did, I did watch, I watched today. I watched, uh, I, I kind of didn't, didn't catch a lot, uh, in the, in the days leading up to it, but how about Jim Herman? Who saw this one coming? I mean, was this everything that you hoped for when you, when you sat out an 18 or 36 whole day at Bannon that you wanted, that you want to see Jim Herman pull through and shoot 124 on the weekend? He gave us something at least. I mean, it was, I, it wasn't, the leaderboard wasn't getting me super jacked up going into it. Not going to lie. Uh, I wouldn't have picked Jim Herman as something that I would have wanted to happen in particular, but the way he played on this weekend and like the, 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 the shot of him inside the trailer, wherever he was watching it from legit, like they captured that so well of he, he did not want that playoff. I feel like every time they go to that shot, guys are just kind of sitting there, they're acting calm, they're acting cool. I'm sure they're freaking out on the inside, but he was visibly wearing what looked like some very, very real nerves in that trailer. Dude, he drank from water from a water bottle with the cap on. I mean, you can't you can't even make this stuff up. And it's and it's not like this is his first win either. 
like right, he's, but he like doesn't. He, he won. He won last July. I know, but it doesn't. You know, for somebody that has struggled so much since the win, doesn't you know get a ton of starts still. And I, I said this on Twitter. Like he, one of my favorite stats maybe I've ever seen is that he won on the PGA Tour last year and didn't make the playoffs, which is it has to be an opposite field event for you to do that, but it's truly one of the most amazing things. I don't even know how that happens. He was hurt, I think, for, for a good chunk of that. But, but I mean, your, your point remains is that the dude, when he sniffs contention, and it's not, he does not do it very often, but when he sniffs contention, he is absolutely cutthroat. I mean, he made, lethal. he made three birdies, I think, over the last six holes. The birdie on 17 was really good. And then, I mean, to shoot 124, on, I, I know it was lift, clean, and place, and it, it's, it's, it's target practice out there. Uh, but for a guy who hasn't done absolutely anything over the course of this PGA Tour season, uh, we were looking back. Brooks obviously blew up at TPC Harding Park, shot 74 on the final day. Jim Herman shot worse than him. He was the only player in the field who shot worse than Brooks Kepka on a day when everybody was getting it in Harding Park. And a week later, he wins on the PGA Tour. That's insane. I, I do love like the true come from nowhere. I, I know it's like easy Twitter fodder to just like post the recent results from somebody that has come out of nowhere. But what this guy has done, a co- like three t- three wins is huge too. I, I I was in and out of catching the audio. I don't really know how well they highlighted. Like, I mean, you would know the criteria better than I do. Three wins gets you on the Champions Tour, doesn't it? God, I, uh, I'm not even it, sure about that. By the time he gets to, he's 42. By the time he's 50, they may have changed all the rules by then. Who knows? But I think it's something along those lines that you avoid. I mean, he's, he's he's almost he's almost in Ricky territory at this point. I, that's scary. <laughs> I, I, you know, I thought we wouldn't get there today with Big Randy not being on the episode, but you just <laughs> swooped right in there and went for that. Nobody wants to ever remember Ricky's European tour wins. Uh, it's probably the only time I'll ever use European the tour. Asian tour? To, does, does, to does the Asian tour count in there? Listen, it was Abu Dhabi and it was the Scottish Open. It was not like the Sicilian Open. Those were big events. Uh, I can't believe I thought I'd get a week off from having to do this. But <laughs> Jim Herman, here's another stat. Has as many PGA Tour wins over the past 13 months as Roy McIlroy. I saw that one that, that you tweeted, and that was... A little, you know, 13 months, that's a very selective endpoints, I might say. It but is eight. extremely selective because you, <laughs> you, you, do, you do not want to see what Jim Herman did for the previous, like, 10 months. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. His facts are facts. First win came at age 38 and now has won three times on tour by the age of 42 as well. So, I um, mean, I, 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 love, I love these type of stories. It's, it's a guy who obviously has toiled for, for decades trying to find – you know, the biggest stage on the PGA tour and, and to do it now in an era when you've got the Bryson's and the cam champs and the finals pumping out 200 plus ball speeds and, and hitting it as far as they can and just reducing these classic courses down to nothing for, for Jim Herman to be able to do it while dinking it out there 280 and just rolling in from everywhere. What do you have? Almost 450 feet worth of putts. Um, I, I don't want to see this every single week on the PGA tour, but it's a, it's a cool reminder that, there's there's still some lifers who are absolutely grinding out there and and when they actually see that that career reward come to fruition it it certainly is fulfilling and and satisfying as a tv viewer too yeah it's weird like i i I feel more satisfaction today than say if billy horschel had won yeah totally and i was kind of looking up the kind of preparing some things for horschel to win i thought he was going to win is horschel Number one on the list of sneaky guys that have sneaky amount of wins that you wouldn't think have that many wins. Because we were talking what's about he it got, here, like what's he got five. He has five. One is, is that a team count event. the Zurich. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, that counts, counts the Zurich. Zurich. 
and he had, you know, he has a bunch of other close calls too, but like who else is on that list of guys that in your, you know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but guys that have a sneaky amount of wins that most people wouldn't say like, Hey, this guy, I know Ricky always is the barometer. Like this guy has as many or more wins than Ricky. Like Webb comes to mind. He's got yeah. seven. Webb's got as many as Brooks Kepka, which is a very wild stat in my mind. We we need we also need to get to Brooks Kepka because uh, okay. that was a that was a curious week for him. Webb is the one who always comes to mind for me. What's Jason Day got? Jason Day's got twelve, I think. Uh, he does. Mine is Brant Snedeker. He's got nine, which is just kind of sneaky. What? Yeah, that's what are ha- what are half of them at Pebble? Uh, potentially, I, I think Sneds is that like just the king of. I don't know what to what to call this category, but it's like. Guys that you don't you don't count on every week. Like if if Brant Snedeker misses the cut, if Billy Horschel misses the cut, you don't notice anything, right? Sure. If Ricky misses a cut, like you you would probably notice it. It probably somewhat get talked about. But guys that have won a ton of events yet still fly completely under the radar. So Sneds has won the Wyndham twice. He's won the Heritage Farmers Insurance Open Tour Championship. Uh, only one. He's got two wins at Pebble Beach and two at the Farmers. So. How many wins does Kucher have? He would nine. He's he got nine too. Be in there. He is, but I feel like Kucher Sneds, is. Sneds is a nice pull. Yeah, that that Sneds might be the king of that of that team uh, as far as uh, just weirdly a lot of wins and still still an active <laughs> player. So let's talk about Kepka. What uh, what uh, what are you seeing there? I mean, I, I was not surprised at all. He's playing how many weeks in a row? And uh, this was cut. six. I mean, there's a potential for him to play. What would it be? Ten or it'd be nine. It'd be nine in a row and ten of eleven once you get to the U.S. Open. And so I wasn't surprised to see him at all. It was more like Brooks had a strange week in that he's he's billed himself as golf's truth teller, and he hasn't been all that honest as of late. And like last week, it was it was multifaceted. The first part is you know the the DJ stuff. And him saying that the media, you know, writers like myself, um, have overplayed the friendship with DJ. No, that was that was Brooks who has said these things. Like there are repeated examples over the course of history in which he said, in one instance, he's my best friend. I love that. I love the guy to death, and that we hang out all the time. And so for him to just backtrack on that and say that that it was us uh, certainly didn't sit well. And then like the injury thing to me is so strange. Because, and I want to get into this, because there are other sports, football, basketball, baseball. I think you could even make a case for tennis that you would not want to disclose an injury because it puts you at a competitive disadvantage, right? Mm -hmm. There is nothing of the sort in golf that if he says, yes, I've got a partially torn patellar tendon, which is what he had last year and needed to have this stem cell treatment. If he comes out and said says that that's great we finally have an explanation for why he can't get up on his left side and why his ball striking has been so inconsistent and and why he's he struggled off the tee i mean just come out and say it but for him to say over the past couple weeks a my hip is not an issue and then b this week he he told uh will gray at the windham that it's not his knee either so so what is it it's like a lower body injury it's like that hockey designation like it's just a lower body injury now. Just be honest with you. If if you've built yourself as Mister Honesty, it kind of cuts both ways, does it not? Amen to that. I mean, he's kind of. I feel like what what you're talking about there is has to stem from this. I'm an athlete, not a golfer, right? It's, it's yes. Not- he, he doesn't he doesn't want to make excuses, which is certainly admirable. But 
there's a rationale for this. You would stop getting asked if you were just honest about it. Yeah, and it, it kind of seems like, I don't know. I do appreciate that he is one of the few guys that is willing to ruffle some feathers talking about other players and, and kind of being a straight shooter about... But yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. If you're not going to be honest with us about what's going on with your own game or whatnot, it just comes off as like tough guy. Like I'm, I'm tough. I'm not hurt. Like no, I'm just, you know, I'm not playing. It's easier to blame bad play than it is like an injury for somebody of his weird ego. I guess I don't know if it's necessarily ego, but just of his build of I'm this, I'm this athlete. Like no chance. I. First of all, he hates the fact that he's a golfer. Second of all, if he was an injured golfer, he would feel even more emasculated. I feel yeah. like, well, and and it's like it's straight out of the Tiger playbook. Yes, and and t- but Tiger, to his credit, over the past couple of years, has been way more forthcoming about how he's feeling. Now we had absolutely zero idea that he needed arthroscopic surgery on his knee uh, that he had last fall and ended up missing a couple of months. But like he'll tell you if he's not feeling well that day with his back. Yes, I woke up stiff. I could not move. I could not move that well. We're going to have to see how this weekend goes because, you know, I woke up today and it didn't feel great. I, I appreciate that. And it doesn't put him at a competitive disadvantage. You, you know, if Rory's up on the leaderboard and he's, oh, you know, Tiger's not feeling good. I've got to, I got a leg up on him now. No one's thinking like that. They're worried about their own game. They're worried about attacking the golf course. And so this hyper secrecy that Brooks has adopted is, is so strange because I'm with you. Like, how blunt he is and just how honest he is just approaching everything else in terms of the golf world, what he thinks of slow play and some of his peers. I love that. I love that. I think we need more of it because PJ tour by and large is super vanilla, but this injury stuff and the relationship with DJ, it's just putting him into a hole. that just seems unnecessary. No, I, I think it also, it, it ranges from blunt, like blunt, honesty, enjoyable, to also at times really petty. Um, yes. the, Bry- the Bryson stuff is starting to get a little bit like, I mean, all right, man, like I, I, you've won four majors here. This guy's won zero and you seem to be like mentioning him every time you get an opportunity to talk. And it's yeah, now kind it's of funny. Just like bull- now it's just like bullying. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny, like at times, but at the same time, it's kind of like, wait, why is this so important to you? Like you, you're on a whole different level. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I don't want you to turn into a polished like media guy, whatever that is. And I do appreciate, you know, the, the transition, I guess he's had from like feeling like people, I feel like he came out, was tr- kind of trying to fake in his way around it and said things he was felt like he was supposed to say. People yeah. still didn't really like him or didn't really, weren't really naturally drawn to him. And then he was like, well, all right, well, why don't I just, you know, actually say what I actually think. And still probably not experiencing that many people liking him and kind of is at a crossroads of how he's supposed to handle some of this stuff. Yeah. And like, I wonder if Saturday at the PGA was an eye opening experience for him because, you know, it's, it's all fun and games and he's torching Bryson or, or Sergio or, or slow play or Rory, you know, you can get some, you can get some chuckles out of it. And then, but it seemed like it crossed the line when it was DJ, like, Oh, harmless DJ. Why would you go out of your way to, to denigrate a guy who is your one-time friend. And so I wonder if that could potentially be a turning point for Brooks, the way he thinks about it, because he certainly seemed apologetic, not necessarily about taking a shot at DJ, but kind of putting down the other guys who were in that situation, the guys like Morikawa and Cam Champ, who who haven't had all that much experience, but were still up on the leaderboard. And I think Brooks actually felt bad about the way that that came out. Um, but I'm, I wasn't is- sure he was necessarily taking down the – the gunfire at, at DJ. 
Yeah, and I felt like that's kind of understandable. I, I, I was, uh, we all kind of piled on him. I, I was definitely a part of that for the, his comments he made after the round. But I can see that walking straight off a golf course, you know, it has got to be super intense to compete in a major championship, even when there's not cr- crowds around. And to just like look at a leaderboard and kind of think what you're saying, like, you know, say what you're thinking quickly after a round. I'm sure he, I'm sure I actually believe him when he says he, you know, doesn't, didn't like how it came off and sounded. Um, cause I'm sure it's just not, it's gotta be a hard time to really speak very safely and polished. And I, I have no problem with him looking at the board and saying like to himself, like, Hey, yeah, these guys haven't done it before I've done it. Like I know, I know I'm confident going into tomorrow, but the, the public does not like when people say those kind of things out loud, <laughs> if they're, if they're viewed as being disrespectful, which I, I don't think he, I truly don't think he meant them as disrespect. But it definitely came off that way. So it's it's reasonable reaction all around, I think. Yeah, and like having seen that hundreds of times, I'm not sure viewers at home understand how quick it is from like players getting in the scoring to going and doing the partner interviews, and then we, you know, you do the uh, interviews with with people like me who are who are waiting there with notebooks out. Like it's super quick. It's it's a matter of minutes. And so I don't think he was there studying the leaderboard and and thinking of of prepared remarks of what he wanted to say. And so I, t- I tend to give him a pass there, just like I tend to give a pass to disappointed players on Sunday. They sign their card and they come straight out with a camera in their face, and they're being asked to speak eloquently and intelligently and compassionately about what was a heartbreaking moment five or 10 minutes ago. And so I tend to give those players a pass too, if they say something that's potentially regrettable. Um, and it, I think after a couple of days, Brooks had seen the error of his ways, but the DJ thing just doesn't make any sense at all. Like you just have to own it at this point Just say we had a falling out. We're no longer friends. And I'd like to keep it at that. And I think everyone would drop it. Yeah. I mean, something happened at the Ryder cup. we still don't really know exactly what happened there. And, uh, yeah, I, Brooks also seems like the kind of guy that might be hard to be friends with over a long period of time. <laughs> whereas, Potentially so. Whereas DJ, I don't think I think he's just a, you know can go along with pretty much anything. A quick break here to talk to you about our friends at Pinehurst. I don't know about you guys. I've been watching a lot of USAM this week. Uh, it has reminded me of watching the USAM last year at Pinehurst number two and number four. And the upcoming US Open at Pinehurst in 2024. Again, look at the list of those golf courses. You can't sign up and go and play all of them. It's really cool that the USGA has made Pinehurst kind of one of the homes of championship golf because it does have so much to offer. You want to play the championship golf course number two, you can certainly do that. They've recently renovated number four course by Gil Hance. Much, much more playable version, and I'll say it, an easier version of number two with the same aesthetic, same kind of vibe, and just a perfect complement to number two. They've got like nine courses there. I think they're maybe 10 now. I don't even know. They've got the Thistle Dew Putting Green right next to the Cradle, the beautiful par three course designed by Gil Hans and Jim Wagner. If you're craving to be traveling, playing some golf, if you had some trips canceled this year, look no further than Pinehurst. Go to pinehurst.com, see what kind of great offers they have there. I promise you, if you've never been, I know it's a lot harder to get, maybe even impossible to get to Scotland, England, Ireland. If you want a true, firm, fun, sandy golf experience, look no further than Pinehurst. So again, pinehurst.com, see what they've got going on there. Amazing offers. Let's get back to our chat with Ryan Lavner. Who are some of the guys, like when you're on site reporting and, and you're talking about the, you know, these guys that are coming out to, to talk to you guys, who are the guys you look forward to speaking to the most? Or who are the guys that are the best at handling that? And maybe who are, if you're willing to name names, some of the ones that you're like, oh, I know this isn't going to go very well. 
I think Rory can be kind of hit or miss when you when you get him coming off the 18th green. And look, he's he's playing for a lot more than than a Billy Horschel or Jim Herman in terms of his legacy and, and kind of his standing in the game. There's a lot more expectation and pressure on him when he's going to win a tournament. Um, and so he he tends to wear his devastation on his sleeve a little bit more. John Rahm, you could certainly put in that category. Justin Thomas, I love the guy to death, but if things go south down the stretch for him, that could be that could be kind of tough. Bryson, you might not even actually get to talk to him. Um, <laughs> but I think I think Adam Scott probably has the best perspective of players. I mean, he just lives an idyllic life, and I think we all want to be him. But he's a player who, if things don't go right over the last hour, I think you can always count on him a to show up, which is what all we really want. We need supporting color. We need supporting sound for for stories and be able to ask him questions of a what went wrong and and b why did it go wrong uh, i think that's really important boy it put me on the spot there no those are uh, those are good answers that's, that's, um, i wouldn't I'm, I would trying, have thought, I'm trying to think i would have thought rory would have been on the opposite side of like you know one of the one of the the easier guys or better better guys to deal with i know what you're saying that in that you know after a bad round it can be kind of yeah tougher. some sometimes sometimes he might not he might not stop if something goes wrong on 17 or 18, he's going to stop. But if he just has a, a poor final round, if he shoots 74 or 75 when he's in the lead heading into the final day, there's a chance, if not a likelihood, that he's not going to that he's not going to stick around for questions afterward. And, mm-hmm. and look, if it happens a couple times a year, I totally get it. We're not the ones who are between the ropes. We're just the ones asking questions. And so if he's frustrated enough to to not want to stop and, and dissect every detail of what was a disappointing day, I, I totally get that. Right. You know, the more scenarios like what happens with Brooks, um, you know, the reaction to those comments, um, then the less likely that they are, you know, going to want to stop when things aren't going great or when, you know, it is a big moment because people are going to scrutinize it. It's tough. It's tough thing to manage uh, for both the writers and for the players and stuff. And I, I think and I think that's why Tigers. That's Look, he, he might not always say something in his news conference after he speaks or after he after he plays around, but he almost always talks. I mean, every single round. Doesn't matter whether he shoots 65, 70, 75. Doesn't matter if he wins. Doesn't matter if he loses. Doesn't matter if he's feeling poorly. Doesn't matter if he's feeling great. You can probably count on two hands, maybe a little bit more over the course of his 20 something year career, in which he hasn't stopped. And for people who need to fill up their notebooks and write stories every single day, to me, that's one of the greatest things that, that Tiger has done. He, he is accountable for his own play. And I think that type of model, uh, if that was on the PGA Tour more widespread, I think we'd, we'd all be in a better place. Yeah. Well, all right. Not to not to reverse course back to the Wyndham, but uh, one of the only things I jotted down to talk to you about today was if you could help me try to explain what Siwoo Kim did on the sixth hole today, uh, tied for the lead, maybe kind of one back. Horschel was making a birdie right around that time uh, to either take the lead. But I, I, for those that haven't seen the hole, can you describe the hole a little bit and try to explain why he tried to drive it over this ditch where I can, I can only count maybe like four or five guys the whole week that tried this tee shot. I don't know if any of them were ever in contention at any point when they did this, but can you, pl- I, I didn't have the sound on for this part. Can you please help me make sense of this? All right. So it's like a 430 yard par four. This is the sixth hole we're talking about. Yep. Field. And, and there's a, there's a Creek that, that bisects the, the middle of the fairway. And so it's like 260, 270 or something like that off the tee. So almost everybody just hits a hybrid, a long iron, a, a, a three wood or something down there just to just to bust it down there and give themselves, you know, a, 
mid to short iron in, into the green. For the first three days, Siwoo Kim did that. He was somewhat effective to it. I'm, I'm looking at it now. He made a birdie on the second round, uh, made part in the third round. Part of the, yeah, so he, he played the hole in one under for the first three days. And then for some reason, he was tied for the lead. For some reason, he grabbed driver. And it was funny because Dottie, Pepper, Ian Baker, Finch, and, and Faldo were all screaming at him when he had driver in his hands. Like how unnecess- how much of an us- unnecessary risk that is that there's there's basically no reward whatsoever. I mean, the, the area that he'd be hitting into is 20 yards wide tops. Then there's a bunker which leaves that dreaded like wedge bunker shot. And then there's the native area to the right, which of course is where Siwoo Kim sliced it into and lost his ball and made double. But like it was so funny in the sense that Dottie, Fowler, and Baker Finch knew it right away knew it right away that this was an absolute boneheaded decision, that why would you possibly hit driver when you could just just feather a little three-wood down there and leave yourselves 175 yards into the flag. And sure enough, it comes back to bite him. Then he pulled driver again on eight and another bogey. And that's just see-woo. It's inexperience in that position, and it's just a bad club choice. I, can you help me make sense of see-woo? Because I feel like you know when he, when he does get in contention – I, it's another one of those guys I look at and I'm like, hey, how do you not win like a lot more? Are you really good? Yet at times just seems to completely fade away. I, I, you, you follow like the amateur game and you follow these guys as they're coming up better, you know, closer than any, maybe anyone I know. How do you make sense of Siwoo Kim overall as a player? No, I think you hit on it perfectly. Like you, you watch him swing the golf club the way that he did certainly on Saturday, um, shooting 62. And it was, it was like, it was nothing, you know, he, he almost made two aces, hit it to like five feet for the first third on the par three. And it was like his his swing is beautiful. He's been working with Claude Harmon over the past year. Claude does some great stuff. But you look at the statistics. I mean, it's sneaky terrible. Like he's he's not a good driver. Uh, his, his iron play is really poor. Um, I guess around the greens, he's decent. I remember at the at the players when he won, wasn't that like the big thing that he was just god-awful? on and around the greens and he just blew away the field that week. And it was kind of a eye-opening experience in that, oh wow, if a guy with this great of a swing can figure it out on and around the greens, you know, look out, this is a potential world beater. And it just hasn't just hasn't unfolded like that. Now partially that's because of injuries. His mindset isn't great, like his on course compartment and the way that he handles himself on the golf course is not great. But there's there's something lacking. Because if you if you watch him play golf, I mean it's an absolute stripe show, and you look at the results and the stats as a whole, and they they just don't seem like the the proper sum of the parts. Yeah, if that announcing crew you named is screaming at the television if you're not screaming, to do something like screaming like what is, are you doing? I, that, that that's I, I I don't like armchair quarterbacking decision making for tour pros. I mean because I think there's just. You know, you go whole. You know, you you talked about it. There's four different. You play that hole four times. You got to make decisions on that. You got you got to do it 72 times. Like it's on repeat. You make a million tiny decisions in a round where you're aiming an approach shot. You know, the difference in three feet of where you aim it could be the difference in the tournament. Blah blah blah. But that obvious of one of saying, do like there's no reason to take this on. It's not like a par five that you're gonna you know, cutting the corner and end up giving yourself a wedge in is just so freaking reckless that I just was one of the most bizarre plays I I can remember seeing a, uh, a tour player make in a crucial situation, not it wasn't a crucial situation yet, but every shot is crucial in the final round when you're that close to the lead. If you're, 
if you're shipping it, if you're, you know, playing in the morning and you're off early on Sunday and you got nothing really to play for and you want to try, like, sure, that's whatever. But anyways, that's, that just was, that one stuck out to me and I could not quite really understand it. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm not sure if he was trying to force the issue. Like he, he'd made par on the first five holes. One of those was a par five. Obviously he knew that with, with preferred lies, it was going to be, it was going to take another low one to, to, to win the title. And maybe he just tried to push, just try to push a little bit. I'm like, like I'm talking about the reward was not there. It is a very narrow sliver of fairway that if you carry the Creek that you're going to have and, and maybe then you can have a straightforward look with a wedge. Like he's not a great wedge player. So I'm not sure why he was right. trying to put himself in that position anyway. And so I'm, I'm not really sure. I was looking to see if there's any post round comments from him. Uh, it doesn't, and it doesn't look like there were, which is disappointing, but yeah, that was a little bit of a curious one. And the fact that, that those three vets like all knew that it was a terrible decision leads me to believe that that was indeed a, a terrible decision. Right. Um, one guy that I'm sure you've covered a lot, you know, in his college days and in his amateur days. And it, I thought we were going to have a kind of a made uh, a storyline for us on the day that they're crowning a USAM champ. The former USAM champ, Doc Redman, uh, made a great run at it. Again, another guy that like we don't track week to week, don't follow week to week, but holy crap, can that guy drive the golf ball. He, hit, he missed seven fairways all week this week. He led the field in strokes gain off the tee and strokes gain tee to green and had two putts today that I was con- – I was convinced we're falling in the middle of the hole that just wobbled off in random directions that kept him from making an extremely serious run at this and missed a close one on 18 as well. But uh, what do you make of what we saw from Doc Redman this week? And uh, is he, I guess, what, what do you project for him going forward? He's a tough guy to predict because he, he came out of nowhere and finished second last year in Detroit. Remember, yep. uh, what was he sponsor exemption that week or Monday qualifier? One of the two, it was a sponsor exemption and that's what he got special temporary membership on the tour from that. And that's, that's how he retained status for this, for this next year as well. Yeah. Like he's, he's obviously a, a, a very good player. Um, I thought he was really raw. I didn't, I didn't think he was quite ready to come out of Clemson when he did. Um, and then he, of course he almost proves me wrong by, nearly winning last last year in Detroit but like he's got all the tools I, I just think he he hasn't quite learned how to win yet like he hasn't learned how to win at every level the USAM I think really came out of out of nowhere the way that he was that he was playing that year and uh that seemed like Doug Gim's tournament to lose and it, and it was his to lose and, until the end and, and Doc ran on that toward stretch at Riviera to to steal it from him uh but he's you know he's he's super inconsistent uh, it seems like give him a year, two, three years. I think you, you're looking at a solid top 50 player in the world. I don't think I don't think we're looking at a world beater. And I think if you look over the history of the of the U.S. Amateur Champion, it's kind of it's kind of hit or miss who you're going to get coming out of that group. That's perfect. I was just looking to transition to ask you about amateur, how you project out amateur champs or people that do really well in the USAM. Uh, full warning to the listeners, we're recording this before the finals. Uh, they have 18 moles, uh, more holes to go at the USAM. Uh, I made Ryan get on now because we, we, we got a tea time on the preserve tonight. We're going to be missing the, the USAM final. <laughs> but um, how do you, like, this has been an especially weird USAM uh, in terms of who is, I think I saw some stats out there. This is the first time in who knows how long that no top 50 players in the world amateur golf rankings are in the, were in the, even the semifinals. Am I a bad golf fan if I do not know really anything about any of the four guys that were uh, that were left in the USAM at Bandon? No, I don't. I don't blame you at all because it, it has kind of been a, a weird week, and I think you had only two of the top ten players in the world 
uh, just make it out of stroke play qualifying. And so that's, that's kind of what you get with, with Bannon. I'm, obviously you're, you're there now. I've, I've been there. Did I mention that? Yeah. I'm at Bannon. Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. Just once, okay. just once, playing playing the preserve tonight. Yeah, I think I just uh, want to make sure you got that in. And, and probably and probably a lot of the, the people listening to this have have been to Bannon as well. And it's it's a magnificent place to to spend three or four days. Like it's it's awesome. I'm not sure you're necessarily going to crown the best player that week. Um, I think that's kind of luck of the draw in terms of what you're going to hit with the wind. And uh, I think it was the quarter final day or the round of 16. I mean, it was absolutely pumping. Like it was blowing 30 miles an hour. Yes, you're going to identify the, the guys who are hitting it square on the button and can cut through that. But you're also just going to get some some weird bounces and just some unpredictability and volatility. And that's and that's what you've had this week at, at Bannon. Tyler Strafacci is a is a fine player. He's He won the North and South Amateur this summer. He won the Palmetto Amateur this summer. He comes from a, a great lineage of 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 golfers in his family. I mean, his grandfather played in the in the Masters in the U.S. Open uh, back in the '40s, I think '40s or '50s, I think it was. And that's great. Like he's not he's also not a world beater. He's maybe third best on Georgia Tech's team. His opponent Ali Osborne was maybe third best on his own team. Now we're talking about really good programs, right? Like Georgia Tech and SMU. But these guys, they're they're nice players. But I don't think this is like a a Bryson year or a Victor Hovland year where you're looking at a guy and, and you can automatically point to him and say, that's special. You know, that, that guy's special. That makes a lot of sense. Do you, in the time that you've you know, covered college golf and amateur golf, does the population or the pool of talent seem to be getting as deep as it appears to me who doesn't cover it nearly as closely? Oh, it's insane. Yeah. It's insane now. And so if, if you've got 300 plus people vying to be in the U S amateur, only one's going to emerge like it's it's a guess you would never be able to guess who's going to appear in the championship match john augenstein last year at pinehurst yeah his his match play record is outstanding you never would have put andy ogletree up against him and then and what happens andy ogletree beats him and so like you you look at you look at the round of 16 and, and to me that's that's really where i started paying attention to to this and you had a great mix of of players like michael thor Thorbjornsson. Uh, who's going to play at Stanford, just a junior player. You had Stuart Hagestad in there. You had Philip Barbary, who's played in U.S. Opens before. You had William Mao, who was a great college player. The spectrum runs so deep now that forecasting these types of things is impossible. But I think you can also make the case that it's really hard for these guys to separate each other because over 18-hole match play, really anything can happen especially on a golf course like bandon yeah with the it's kind of calmed down a little bit uh out here at bandon where i am currently um it's calmed down the winds calmed down the last couple of days but the the first few days we went out and played and it was we got blown off the golf course i, I know that kind of shined through pretty well in the coverage that i was able to watch but i think that you know for like really firm conditions can help identify the best golfers I, I i think that but when you combine how firm it is with this much wind i think it becomes a complete crapshoot and that's not to take anything at all away from the guys that have ended up there but i think that's at least a contributing factor towards you know the 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 semifinalists that we're seeing and some of the uh, I, to be honest i didn't know what the who the, the the big favorites really were coming into it um there wasn't they, well, like, they all they all didn't make it so it doesn't matter right well like like you said there wasn't the the guy that's jumping off the page um, no. at you but so i think that's also the state of college golf right now yeah. like we had this we had this wave of just exceptional players 
I would say, over the past five to ten years. And I'm not saying we've necessarily hit a lull right now, but the the players that that we're looking at, who are the best players in college golf, we're we're talking about John Pack, who plays at FSU. We're talking about Davis Thompson, who plays at Georgia. Uh, Kevin Yu, who plays at at uh, Arizona State. Ricky Castillo, who plays at uh, he's going to be playing at Florida. Like those are all really nice players, and they're they're probably going to make very they're probably going to have very nice careers on the PGA Tour. But no one's popping off the screen like a like a Matt Wolf did. Mm-hmm. Or JT did. You know, I'm even surprised over the past couple of years, some of the U.S. amateur winners who we saw in NCAA champions, who we saw who who haven't popped like like maybe we thought we would at the time. Aaron Wise comes to mind, the 2016 NCAA winner. Like you, you watch him play golf, and it's super impressive. And you you think this guy's going to have double digit wins on the PGA Tour? Now he's he's got one, but he hasn't been quite what we thought he was going to be. You have Matt Fitzpatrick who's won the AM. You got Bryson. I mean, guys, guys have done it, right? Like guys have parlayed U.S. amateur success into very nice careers. But then you also have the Gun Yangs and you've got the Stephen Foxes and you've got the Richie Ramseys and the Colt Nose. It's kind of a hodgepodge, right? Like it I'm not is, sure it's yeah. necessarily a, a, a great predictor of future success. That's that's the that's the takeaway I think. Is I, I for a long time I've feel like I've tried to convince myself that if you win the USAM, you're going to be a great a great tour pro for many many years, and that's not not always the case. It's a a week of golf that obviously you got to have a great resume to get there, but uh, not not always the greatest predictor. But what did you think of of how Bandon is playing from what you could tell on TV? I know we talked some about the wind early on, but I think it's pretty amazing that they took it to this the you know the USAM a tournament of this magnitude to this wild ass place. But uh, some people, I know some people were chirping on Twitter. They didn't think it was a great championship golf course. What's your big takeaway from uh, the USAM at Bandit? Oh, wow. No, I think, I think Bandit is absolutely perfect for the US amateur. I think it's a great match play golf course. Um, so I, I think we got to talk about this 15th hole that happened in the semifinals. That was wild. Oh God. Yeah, we can, we can get into that. But like, just to, just to answer your question real quick, like I, I thought it's been great. I think it's been the perfect one for playing in a pandemic in terms of, kind of being in the middle of nowhere. There's so much wide open space that you can separate yourselves. The USGA has done an incredible job of hosting 300 plus players this week and, and, and the guests and caddies and, and having it all, it all work fine by creating a little bubble out there. I think they should be commended. They've, they've done, they've done some things wrong over the past with, in terms of, you know, us open setups, but they absolutely have to be commended for being able to pull this off in a pandemic, even though you didn't have qualifying. And so Bannon has a golf course. I think it probably maxes out at a U.S. amateur, right? I don't think you can stage anything, any championship greater than this, just because of the infrastructure and, and the layout of the golf course. It'd be absolutely impossible to, to put up grandstands and, right. and have, have thousands of fans there. Um, but I'd love, to, I'd love to see it again. I'd love to see it every 10 years. I know they've got a stout rotation coming up, but I, I think it should be – a fixture in that kind of rota. I think having primetime golf uh, on the East coast is also a, a huge win. I've, I think it's been an absolute home run. Whoever says that this has not uh, been a great championship. I don't think is, has been paying attention. Right. No, I probably am, am looking in, in the wrong places as I usually do. Yeah. On, you don't, don't be, don't be looking at the crazy people in dimensions. <laughs> uh, well, so you mentioned it being a great match play golf course and that's where it really hit me. You know, I've always wanted to see competition at, at Bandon for a long time, but 
I do wonder how great of a stroke play uh, golf course it would be. It just it's not what it's designed for. I don't think it's not it's uh, it's not a place where you go out and grind on every single shot. I mean, for resort play, it, it's I don't know how to how to explain what I'm what I'm saying there is it's it's it lures you into taking daring shots, right? Like that 16th hole is incredible <laughs> for match play because. You know, if it's stroke play, guys are probably playing that so conservatively, but it is a great course to take big swings. And I thought they did a great job on the coverage last night on Saturday, just talking about, you know, how you're truly playing, you know, a match against the other player instead of playing, you know, tournament style golf. And the 15th hole was just a short par three. It's not a long par three. It's about 195. That's not, that's not short, but it's not the length that makes it really hard. And the best score that any of the four semifinalists made on that hole was a double bogey. And one guy, I forget who, so one, one guy, I think uh, Gupta won it with a double bogey on the 15th hole because Correct. these guys were making such a mess out of it. And Gupta like almost threw it away himself. Like the door was wide open. And then he, I think he tried to, yeah, he tried to hit like this feathery little pitch shot and did, like didn't even come close to carrying over the ridge. And so it rolled back to his feet. Uh, but to, yeah, they made two, they made one double and three triples. Do I have that, or is that three doubles and a triple? Three doubles and a triple is what it was. Three doubles and a triple. I mean, that's horrible. That is absolutely horrible. And but I'm totally in agreement with you. Like, I'm not sure I necessarily want to see a 72 hole stroke play championship abandoned. I think the luck of the draw in terms of when you're going to hit, because you know you're going to get 30 mile per hour winds at some point during the day. Um, I think if if guys are complaining about it at the British Open, like wait till you come to abandon and get and get that luck of the draw between the morning and, and late waivers. And so I think it's a, I think it's a great golf course. I lo- I've loved how aggressive guys have been. You haven't seen a whole lot of conservative play. I think that's that's a sign of a great golf course, certainly. But but also the the format where if you are going to make a triple on a par three, that it's not going to necessarily haunt you. But I've been a big fan of of having it. I really have. I think it's been a great test. Well, what's amazed me is when you have true uninterrupted coverage with which Golf Channel has had this year is. How much? For the shout out. Uh, of course. Uh, how much? A lot of people are mad about the hours of coverage that the Golf Channel has been on. Uh, it's the same as Fox was last year. I know Fox had a couple hours of online coverage, uh, but I've been a lot of people have been very upset about this uh, over the over the course this week. I'm, I want to say I'm also I'm also not pr- I'm not privy to these discussions, but the fact that that Golf Channel and slash NBC has been able to take this over from the from Fox exactly what, like a month and a half ago exactly. and put on the presentation. <laughs> kind of deserves to be applauded if you're you know if you're thinking clearly and how it's all works with other stuff they're already scheduled you know already scheduled programming right i mean there's champions tour events there's you know lpga they got a lot of other live golf that needs to be shown and there's only so many so many equipment trucks and all that stuff and i don't i don't pretend to know how all that works but the coverage has been um i think it's been the commentary has just been great like you can stick with the drama of these matches when you don't have to take a commercial break every you know five minutes and whatnot and you talk about all these match play factors, Bones and Justin Leonard going back and forth. It's, it's been excellent viewing. Bones has been a star. Right. Bones has been an absolute star walking with these matches. And so it's it's so expansive that I've, I've seen him like right up in there in the fairway. Like he looks like he's 10 feet from the players describing it. Like I'm, I was thinking to myself, aren't they going to hear what he's That's what I thought talking too. about here? Like he is really close. I've seen him like walking on the greens, like getting a good read like he it's like he's basically a caddy again like he's so close to the action i think he's been i think he's been a star and in, in kind of his expertise shines in a place where you can play a simple pitch shot four different ways and so to hear him 
and have his decades of knowledge has been, I think, just invaluable as a viewer to be able to hear that. Yeah, it's 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 so spot on too. Just in in all of the elements you got to think about on some of these pitch shots are truly impossible. Like you are playing to like the center of the green from a green side pitch, and I feel like a lot of these guys are not used to that they are very uncomfortable in that scenario and we see them hit like that shot they goop to hit from over all he had to do was hit the center of the green what's his name had already made a mess of the hole all he had to do was pitch it up onto the green and he couldn't even do it and i'm screaming at the tv like this is why it is really good to watch the best players in the world hit shots off short grass around the greens because it adds an entirely different element to the game yeah, you had such an interesting dynamic yesterday because those four, they've never been in this position before. Like, it's by far the biggest stage that they've ever been on. Then you throw in the uh, consolation prize where if just by making it to the championship match, these guys are going to be exempted into the Masters and the U.S. Open, which is a lifelong dream for all of these guys. And then you throw in the fact that they mostly only know how to hit 60-degree wedges and they're hitting off band in super tight lies. Like you throw all of those variables in there, and to me, there was some train wrecks obviously over the last hour, but I couldn't take my eyes off it. Like it was so good, just knowing all that was hanging on these these pitch shots. There was there, look, there was some great moments, but there was also some train wrecks, and to me, I think that's that's fun to watch sometimes too. Well, I'm sure. Uh, hopefully, nothing too dramatic. Two two parts. I hope some dramatics happen for entertainment viewing, and I hope it's not too dramatic that we sound like idiots having not talked about it because we are recording this as they. Yeah, I want <laughs> I want there to be like a casual four and three win. I don't care I don't <laughs> care who does it. I just want yeah I want there to be like no rules controversy yes. like there was in the round of sixteen. That is just what's like up someone next? just someone cruised to four and three. What happened in that match? We were watching this on TV with no sound, and we like. So take us through the scenario of, of of what match this was and what happened on this on the 18th hole in the round of 16. All right, so it's round of 16. It's with Tyler Strafacci, who is playing the championship match. I'm looking up and watching it right now, and he was playing against Segundo Oliva Pinto, uh, who's going to be starting at Arkansas this fall. And so uh, the 18th hole of Bandon Dunes is a par five, right? And so they both hit their third shots and they're short of the green. And so Oliva Pinto. He's drawing kind of like a, it's 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 it was clearly like a newly raked spot in the greenside bunker, and so he's kind of eyeing up his shot, thinking about what he wants to do. He obviously needs to get it close in order to extend the match. They're all tied at this point, and all of a sudden, his his local caddy just like wanders in there and just starts brushing brushing the the sand, like testing the surface. He wasn't anywhere near where the ball was. In fact, it almost looked like he was on the downslope. First of all, if you're a local caddy. Why would you need to test the surface of the sand? Shouldn't you be familiar with with the way like the sand reacts? Second of all, if you're going to test a spot to see how much uh, sand is in there, why wouldn't you test like closer to the ball and not on the downslope where there's clearly going to be less? <laughs> and third, have you never played golf before? Like, do you know that you do you know that you can't do that? And so those were all questions that were all swirling in my mind. And then it was, what the hell are you doing? Because then he goes to the rules official and denies that he I did know. it. That was the worst part. Over and over, he denied that he was doing it. And Tyler Strafacci's dad, and we can do a whole other podcast on Tyler Strafacci's father, uh, who was super intense and aggressive. Like, he called it out immediately. Like, no, you, you blatantly cheated. You blatantly tested the surface of the sand. That's a loss of pole. And unfortunately for this, it's, it's a loss of match. But, like, the fact that the local caddy denied it, to me, was such a tough look. Because 
it was obvious what he was doing. There was slow motion, high definition video that captured him doing so. And to, for him to deny it was mind boggling to me. Yeah. It just, it looked so blatant and intentional that it, it was, so, that's just what made it so curious was just like, I'm looking up at the screen right now as Trafacci has hit uh, the shot that like we want to see guys have to deal with, which is the center line bunker on the fifth hole. He hits it right at the bunker and it just, it just rolled up into it in a terrible spot. Like you got to, this course makes you decide <laughs> on certain lines and stuff that you want to take. And that's really entertaining to watch the pros uh, that not the pros, but the best players do. Um, it just looked like, like he was trying to lose the match for him almost. And I'm sure that's not necessarily the case, but it was so blatant and so weird. And I, I just, couldn't I couldn't believe and was super impressed with how well Segundo Oliva Pinto handled that afterward. He took a posted a picture on Instagram or whatever it was, saying, you know, this could have happened to anyone. Uh, no hard feeling, no one's fault. And I, if I lost a match at the USAM on the seventy, or I guess on the eighteenth hole, because of that, I would have a hard time accepting that as well as he did. Yeah, like he was he was super gracious and classy in defeat. I thought Tyler Strafacci, actually his opponent handled it really well. He the first thing out of his mouth was that he didn't want to win like that and he feels terrible. Um he was kind of he was kind of shaken up afterward. I, I was I thought it was super curious that there was people on social media like yes, I I totally agree we should not be barbecuing and skewering this local caddy who who it, from all accounts it was like his first year caddying at Bandon and you know, obviously, he didn't think he was going to find himself in the middle of a rules controversy. But he also signed up for this, and so there's there was a there's some segment of the population that was mad that we even printed his name, hmm. which is no, odd to me no. because if if you were a lo- if you were a local caddy and you didn't want to be a part of this, you would go caddy for Chris Solomon uh, <laughs> <laughs> over 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 at Sheep Ranch. <laughs> like he's he he literally signed up for this, and so he's a he's fair game, and then b. I saw some support like, oh, next time I'm at Bannon, I want to I want to make sure that this guy's on my bag. I don't You want a guy who's that inexperienced that he thinks he can test the bunker on the 18th hole of a championship match and think that that's fine. Like, give me the guy who's been there 10, 15 years uh, over the inexperienced guy who's got his hat who's got his hat turned on backwards. Yeah, that was what is tough is the caddy. Every caddy I've ever had here has been just phenomenal and truly. Oh, they were, they're amazing. Yeah. They're, they're, they're arguably the most experienced caddies in the country. And for this guy, it, I mean, it, it certainly just, it looks poorly for the entire group, to be honest with you. Because I think it, it can be hit or miss on caddies, like whether or not you get somebody. There's a lot of, I feel like you get a lot of big egos sometimes with caddies, even at resorts. And that they're, you know, used to knowing more about the course than the players do, which is, of course, to be expected. But I've never felt that abandoned. I feel like they're just all there. Everyone abandoned is there to, you know, tell you or kind of add to your experience overall. And so I think I, I haven't really talked to caddies about that here, but I, th- I have to feel like they have to be just so frustrated that that's the image of abandoned caddies that gets portrayed on the world because I don't think that is necessarily the reality. But that was just... That was an extremely bizarre way to end a match, but I feel like it's always something. What's the buzz on the ground there? I mean, are people shook by by how that went down? Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of like a, a, everyone I've talked to, they're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. I cannot believe that happened. I think it was pretty much everyone said like, oh, you know, he's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, it's I, 
again, it's kind of like Siwoo's driver. It's like, I don't understand the thought process that went into that. And I'd, I'd like to hear, I don't know if there's any comments out there from the caddy on what he was thinking there. But before we let you go, um, how much of the uh, ladies Scottish Open were you able to catch uh, this morning or this weekend? I watched a good bit. I, I walked my uh, 20-month-old around the neighborhood this morning. And then after uh, I'd sweated through a shirt and he was just mop, it was just soaking wet, I decided it was time to come in and watch some ladies Scottish Open. So I watched I watched a decent bit of it. I thought it was a really good win by Stacey Lewis, especially considering uh, how dreadfully slow her, her playing partners were. Yeah. What was the – I feel like I, I heard a lot of chatter on that. I, I watched the last hole of the playoff. Um, but what, what was the, uh, I feel like that was a major topic of discussion is the slow play in that, in the, was it in the playoff or was it in the final group or in? No, the, oh my God, the entire day. Okay. It was, well, actually it was, it was kind of the entire weekend and Stacey Lewis to her credit, just, she does not suffer fools well. And so like after her, after her third round, she was asked about it and she called, she called it dreadfully slow. And she even described her two playing partners, which was Azahara Munoz and Jennifer Song as pretty slow. She was. She knew that she was going to be playing with them in the final round, and she still called them pretty slow. And apparently, they didn't get the message because they they were even worse. Um, they were they were hovering around the lead the entire day, and they just ground to an absolute halt. And so, Stakes Lewis was was really frustrated. You could see the annoyance written all over. And and to her credit, she said she said afterward that she told her caddy on the second hole she wasn't going to complain, and she was like singing songs in her head to just. kind of take her mind off it and and just if you stop for a minute to think about the ridiculousness of that Uh, Stacey Lewis has now won 13 times in the LPGA she has to sing songs in her head to pass the time knowing how slow it is going to be in the final group and also knowing that the LPGA rules officials are going to do nothing to crack down on it so I think that was uh, the most frustrating part and 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 she pulled off a a great shot in the playoff hold out of hold a 20 footer on the first extra hole to beat three other players. And I got to tip my cap to her because in the press conference afterward, she used that platform to agitate for change and called on the LPGA to get tougher on slow pokes on tour and say, we're going in the wrong direction. Mm. Um, and that something needs to be done about it. So I thought, I thought it was certainly a gutsy win for her. It was her first win in three years, first since becoming a mom. And it's also good to have her voice back in the game because because she can, she can make things happen. She's got a track record of it, and and she's going to keep talking until something gets done. Yeah, I hated that. That was the the takeaway, I guess, from from today was uh, it absolutely yeah, was. And, unfortunately, uh, yeah, unfortunately. But I, if I guess if she is going to call that out in the in the post you know round interview, then it probably is going to become a decently decent sized story. But it was. I mean, first of all, Danielle Kang almost won three events in a row, which is absolutely nuts her comeback she's won the first two events since the lpga came uh started back up and missed by missed the playoff by one uh this time around but uh it's great to see it's a really amazing to me that they're having the lady scottish open and that all the players are able to get there safely and that this has been able to happen and they're having the uh the rico women's british open this this upcoming week at royal troon uh which should be a a great viewing experience for uh for people back in the states uh, in morning coffee golf if you want to watch some golf in scotland (laughs) watching these uh women play golf uh on these golf courses is extremely extremely entertaining and uh, I, I think some, somehow even more fun than watching the men play um, on Lynx Golf. It certainly feels more more relatable, doesn't yes. it? Yes. All right, who's your pick uh, to win the USAM? We're going to do it now. They're all square uh, with uh, looks like 12 holes to play, something like that. You're gonna, we can't, we, you can say it twice, and we can edit in the right answer if you want, if you prefer that. All right, I'm going to go with 
Uh, I'm going to go with Ali Osborne. Okay. Before last year and Andy Ogletree's uh, stirring, stirring rally to, to surprise John Augustine at the end, the last five winners have all led after, after the morning 18. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with history with Ali Osborne, who, as we've mentioned, was maybe the third best player on SMU's team. <laughs> what was uh, so? You said we could talk, talk about Strafacci's dad. What was the? Uh, I've I've missed this storyline here. Admittedly, what, uh, what what's there? What's there to talk about there? All right. So how was Strafacci's dad? He was the one who called out the rules infraction. So it started in the round of sixteen. He was the one who noticed the local caddy sifting through the sand and immediately called it out and, and said that he was cheating. And then that should be a loss of hole and loss of match. So he was he was the one who pointed it out there. And then over these last couple of days, like he's he's right in there. I, I I made a comment yesterday. Like he looks like he wants to snatch Tyler's club from him and, and hit the shots himself. <laughs> he was a he was an accomplished player himself. He's played in the USA amateur before. He's really intense. He's he's pumping his fist. He's giving reads. He's he's all up in the club selection. And I captured a screen grab yesterday. Like he's maybe five feet away just glaring intently at his son, just just willing him to hit it within 10 feet on every single hole. Like, it's just, he's living and dying with every single shot that Talos Trafacci hits. It's very, it's very intense and very aggressive. It sounds a little bit, look at me, if, I, if I'm saying so. They just showed a clip of him uh, opening up his caddy, caddy vest to show the Augusta, lo- or the Masters logo, which I'm assuming that was from yesterday after they uh, had officially made it. Once you once you make the finals, you're in the next year's Masters. So, yeah, it seems to yeah. He, I mean, love the spotlight. There's some serious yeah. There's some serious little league dad vibes. <laughs> yes, going on with Tyler Shafaji <laughs> just at a national championship level for golf. It sounds like it based on what you're saying. So, all right, Lav, thank you uh, for subbing in here on a Sunday. We really appreciate your time and perspective. We'll let you get to. Uh, watching the rest of this match and uh i'm gonna go play some golf some more golf at bandon which i am currently located at <laughs> as you as you've now said for the sun i, I couldn't remember if i said that earlier or not so um but yes signing off here from bandon uh thank you mr lavner and uh, we'll chat soon all right thanks for having me man be the right club be the right club today yeah. Yeah. that's Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.